All right, guys, you can open up your Bibles to um, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 uh, to 42 is what we'll read again. This is now our second week in this text. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Um, we're going to launch out from this text uh, this morning, kind of this week and next, um, into something that really this text kind of stirred up in my heart uh, as I was thinking about it, preparing for last week, and then coming in to this week. So I do want to read this. I'll kind of recap a, a, a little bit, and then we will dive in. I, I realize... I always come with a lot today. I have quite a bit, so I'm going to need, need your prayers even for the, the uh, ability to edit on the fly. Uh, so here, here we go. If you have your Bible, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Let's read. I'll pray. We'll dive in. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. God, it's really the same prayer that was on my heart last week that I would bring before you here again this morning. My prayer is that here, even in the Silicon Valley, always hustling, always bustling, always moving, always anxiously toiling, laboring, barely resting. I pray that even here you would move us from the place of Martha, the place of anxiety, the place of serving you but missing you. To the place of Mary, God. I pray that by the end of this sermon, we would all feel as if we've been sitting at your feet, listening to you. And we'd all feel a renewed sense of uh, desire to see that cultivated in our lives. More and more. I just pray in some small way, God, this uh, time we have together will help towards that end. For your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. Um, so we saw last week that Jesus is calling in our text uh, Martha and, by extension, us to... Um, Move away from anxious, burdened, serving work towards a sort of restful relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Now, by way of summary and perhaps clarification, um, the point Jesus is making here when he talks about Mary um, and sitting, listening to him being the one necessary thing, right? You see it there in verse 42. I don't think he's trying to say that work or serving has uh, have no place in the Christian life. What I do think he is trying to say is that all of our work and all of our serving and all of our Martha-type activity ought to come from a Mary-type heart. Be done with a Mary heart. So I don't think Jesus in our text is pinning Martha versus Mary and we have to choose. Either we're going to work or we're going to sit. I know which one I might like more. He's not saying there are two types of people in the world or in the church and you need to decide which one you get to be. He's saying everyone who wants to start off with Martha, working, laboring, sweating, trying to perhaps get approval or get things going the way that they thought they should be, needs to move towards Mary. That's the one necessary thing. That's the fundamental thing. That's the thing from which everything else flows. Sitting Resting, relying on Jesus. Everything else kind of comes uh, into, into order when we sit before our Savior and let Him speak. Then when you do move, when you do work, when you do serve, you're not missing Him in the midst of it. You're doing it in the strength which He supplies. So in other words, we are to first pursue Mary's heart and then pursue Martha's work. To put it simply, perhaps this will help, when we get alone with Jesus, it transforms our activity for him. Or our being with Jesus transforms our doing for Jesus. So it's not an either-or issue here. It's a both-and, but it's a one necessary starting point here. Sitting and listening. Um, Perhaps one way I could help you understand what I think is happening in this text is to say it's an illustration of a verse maybe you were familiar with in John 15, verse 4, where Jesus says this to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the call to Martha here is abide. And then in that abiding, in that resting, in that place, you will move forward and bear much fruit. But so long as you cut off from the vine to try to bear all this fruit, you will not bear anything, at least that God would call for it. So, here's really the question that I wanted to ask, and for dramatic effect, let me take a sip of water. <laughs> if this abiding, or sitting and listening to Jesus like Mary here, is the first, the fundamental Uh, The one necessary thing. Do we know how to do it? 
I imagine, at least I hope, that coming off, if you were here last week, forgive me if you weren't, uh, coming off of the sermon last week, there were many, or maybe even just reading it today, there are, the text today, there are many who would say, yes and amen, I need that sort of Mary type thing. I need to sit and listen to Jesus. And you come away going, yes, hallelujah, pastor, that sounds great. But then you get back to your life and you go, now wait a minute. What does that look like? What does that mean for me now, 21st century, modern world? Jesus ain't here in the flesh. I don't see his feet. I can Where do I sit? I don't hear his voice per se. Where do I go to hear his voice? What is this supposed to look like? If it's so important, if it's the one necessary thing from which everything else flows in the Christian life, how do I do it? Now, some of you say, oh, of course, Nick, I know where you're going to go with this. We sit and we listen at Jesus' feet now through things like reading the Bible and prayer. And you'd be right. The idea of the daily devotions, the idea of perhaps you call it a quiet time, or if you're really cool, you call it the QT, right? Like that guy's over there having his QT, drinking his cup of coffee. We get this idea that we are supposed to nowadays to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him. We're supposed to be in the Bible and, 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 and we're supposed to be praying. Hearing his word. But even still, though we might know that's the connection to make from, from Mary into our culture here today, what we find out statistically is that we're not doing it. I just did some quick research. In fact, leveraged some of the Lifeway stuff. Uh, Ron, uh, but Ed Stetzer in his blog post, uh, the epidemic of Bible illiteracy in our churches, which should already tell you where this is going, refers to a recent Lifeway research study where they found that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. And then of those 45, only one in five would read the Bible once a day. And then it's virtually the same amount, one in five. This is churchgoers again, people that are regularly in church. The other one in, there's another one in five who don't read the Bible at all. We say, no, it's not for me. I'll let the pastor come and bring me something good on Sundays, but not for me every other day of the week. So breaking that down, again, you have about 20% that read it every day. Another 20% that don't read it at all. And then the great majority in the middle there that read it from time to time. Get into their Bibles from time to time. And again, these are Christians, or these are at least people who are regularly in church who we would assume want to be disciples. And so the question is, if we know... If we know that this abiding is essential, if we know that this is the one necessary thing, and we understand that reading the Bible is our equivalent largely today of sitting and listening to Jesus, why are so many doing it? The answer, I think, go in a couple of different directions. At worst, it's because we just don't care. But at best, and this is where I imagine many of us even are, it's that we don't really know how to do it. We don't understand what 
time in God's word in the Bible is even supposed to look like? What's supposed to be happening? So you might hear a sermon on Sunday and go, oh man, I'm pumped. I want to get alone with Jesus. Then you flip your Bible open to Leviticus or whatever and you go, or one of the prophets and you go, what is this? It's confusing. It doesn't feel edifying all the time. Then you sit there before God. It kind of feels awkward. Not like I suppose it did with Mary where she was literally um, hearing the physical audible voice of Jesus to her and being comforted, no doubt. We try these things and we go, is that all there is to it? What was supposed to happen? There ain't no fireworks going on. I just kind of feel like I wasted some time. I'm more confused than when I started. Maybe I'll go back to my little, you know, daily devotional book that kind of gives me a bite-sized nugget. I feel more comfortable with that. So, I'm aware that a lot of us probably are not reading the scriptures, are not spending this time with Jesus in this way, because it's confusing. And I'm not in any way going to claim to fix that for us with a couple of sermons, but I do want to do my best. Um, this, All this sort of stuff is kind of what I'm going to try to address for us here uh, this week and next. Really, this comes out of a response to my own personal struggles with a devotional life, okay? Um, I mentioned it a little bit last week, but gosh, I'll, I'll I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I should know better, you would think, right? He's a pastor. I get, in the, I get in the Bible, I start reading, and in a matter of minutes, I'm just off on something else. I'm working on, you know, this project for ministry, or I'm, you know, uh, reordering this, you know, task action list, or whatever it is. It's like all these other things on my mind. And just kind of meandering around, or maybe you just kind of find yourself, at least for me, just kind of venting my feelings, like, is that really what this is about? Or kind of staring at my navel and going, did I even read the Bible? I mean, I feel a little better, but did I even hear from God? So I created something that I would call the um, sacred path. Just something to keep me on on path towards Jesus in this time. Something to help kind of give, you know how when you're bowling and you, and, 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 you know, when you don't know what you're doing, the, uh, it's good to get those bumper lanes, right? Because otherwise it's just no fun. Things keep flying off. You're just like, all right, zero, this is, this is lame. You put the bumpers in, suddenly you feel like you're pretty good because it keeps you going straight. And so for me, I don't know why that illustration just came to my mind, but that's essentially what I'm wanting to give us. It's essentially what I tried to do for myself. Drawing from the scriptures, what I would say, maybe five steps along this path towards relating to Jesus in this way. Um, so today, this morning, I'm, I'm really just going to look at the first three, and uh, I'm actually going to just hold you in suspense for the other ones. They're words you probably wouldn't even understand what I mean anyways until we get there. But the first three are solitude, silence, and scripture. You'll see on the back that we're going to be kind of filling out this worksheet that um, I actually use, and I'll make it available to you if you want to use it or just recycle it. That's fine. Um, but I will at least say this before we dive in. This is one way, all right? 
I am not in any way attempting to say this is the only way. Some of you guys are probably in that 20%. I hope maybe even we break the statistics and there's more that are reading the Bible every day, finding it fruitful, already have a, a way that you're kind of relating to him and resting in him like Mary. Awesome. Don't let this throw you off track. Maybe let it fill in some things for you or encourage you in certain directions. But then others of us, like myself, might need some help and some structure a little bit. And so just give this to you. You can mix and match, take it, leave. But um, let's consider these things together. The one thing we do know is that Jesus says sitting at his feet and listening like Mary is the one necessary thing. So, gosh, as a church, let's make an attempt at it, right? All right. Solitude, silence, scripture. We're going to take them one at a time. First, um, solitude. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about being alone? How do you feel when it's just you? I'm not talking about kind of out, you know, in public or at the food court in the mall, but you're eating alone. I'm talking about it's just you. How do you feel about um, those moments? Uh, I imagine that we respond in different ways. Each one of us probably is kind of on this various spectrum, but there are kind of two extremes, right, that help us understand this. Um, some of us probably love it. Some of us probably get out with people, get out, we, we kind of think the idea sounds nice, and we get out, we're like, no. I got to get back to my comfort zone, get back to the place where I feel good and I can kind of just be me and not worry about, you know, everyone else. And then there are others, probably on the other side of the extreme, that love it, that live for it, that actually get really anxious when you are alone. Like, oh, I don't even know what to do with myself. So you're, you know, you've always got the TV on or the radio going or you're, you know, trolling Facebook or whatever, just so you can kind of feel like, oh, phew. I'm not alone in the world. Now, there are um, many reasons for these sorts of preferences that we might have. I'll give you a few ideas here. On the one hand, we may prefer solitude to the company of others because, well, honestly, there's like this self-conscious kind of fear when we get into, uh, you know, get out in relationship with other people. There's this kind of thing that happens where, you know, every word we're kind of rethinking it and wondering, wait, what was that? Or we feel like we have to kind of put on the mask, play the game, be somebody else, be who they want me to be, whatever it is. And so we kind of go, gosh, this is exhausting. I want to get alone. Right? Or on the other hand, those people that just love uh, crowds, community, might think, that, oh, they're just people, people. Right? They just love everyone. Sometimes what we find is that this whole inability to be alone and the desire to kind of always be in the buzz of, you know, a group of people or a good conversation, sometimes it is a mask. That itself is a mask, covering up some things that you don't want to face when you're alone. That when you get alone, the reason why you got to reach for the TV or reach for the earbuds or whatever it is, is because stuff starts to come out when I'm alone, like stuff I don't want to face. Like there's feelings that start to ache that I don't realize I had. There's brokenness that starts to emerge that I don't want to think about. So let me just make that next phone call and see what so-and-so is doing. Or at least turn on a movie, whatever. Now, 
in either of these extremes, we miss the idea of solitude as it is presented in the Bible. And as I'm kind of calling us uh, to consider here this morning. Um, on the one hand, solitude uh, that the Bible calls us to is not merely an escape from people. It's a pursuit of God. But then, on the other hand, it is the solitude that we see in the Bible, uh, while it does bring out uh, some of that stuff inside us and the wounds and the brokenness and the emotions that we kind of don't want to face. It does bring that out. But here's the thing. God meets us in that place of solitude with him and brings healing. So it's not just this escape and it's not this frightening thing that we don't want to face. It's a pursuit of God and he meets us there and brings healing to those places. There's this thing that... um, um, Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together, it's interesting because though his book is about life together as a church, he has a whole chapter devoted to time alone. And one of the things he says is, beware of community if you can't be alone. So in other words, our time alone with God will heal, restore, help, so that when we do engage community, whether we're there or not, we're healthy. We have that one necessary thing that Mary does. Now, before I go any further on this, I, I want to make a case for solitude's importance from Scripture. And I could go to a number of different texts to try to show you this, but I feel like the clearest thing I could do is just simply show it, uh, solitude, as kind of a, a, a rhythm in our, our, our Savior's life. Day to day, you see that this was a pattern, that this was something that he pursued, alone time with God, solitude with his father. Luke, I'm just going to fly through some of these, because we've looked at these, uh, some of them at least. Luke 4.42 says this, When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Mark adds this in his account, And there he prayed. So we know he's pursuing the Father there in this desolate place. And then we read, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. So here's what you have in context. Jesus is doing all these miracles, healing all these people. The crowds are coming to him, but you know what he says? He says, I've got to get alone with my Father and pray. I need solitude. I need to get to the desolate place. Even there, the crowds find him, the people find him, the disciples come, everyone's looking for you. But now Jesus, because he's been there with his father, has a clear sense of what he's supposed to do. I've got to move on. I'm sorry, guys. I've got to keep the mission advancing. Stuff like that. We see the same sort of thing in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. But now, even more, the report about him, Jesus, went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But, here it is, verse 16, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Oh man, there's a buzz around town about Jesus and all that he's doing and the crowds are coming. But he would withdraw into solitude with his father. Where his whole equilibrium would just get off. Some of us are there, equilibrium, just spinning out. What's up and down anymore? This is a place where our Savior went to center his heart, his life. Are we? 
Or after Jesus fed the 5,000, we read that he dismissed the crowds and went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Matthew 14, 23. Again, crowds, but retreat to be alone with his father. And then Mark 6.31, we see that solitude with God is not something merely for Jesus, some special thing that he gets as a son or needs to do because he's the son of God. He actually tries to bring this sort of rhythm into the uh, lives of his disciples. After he'd sent them out on, on mission and they'd kind of been to the various towns, Mark 6.31, he says this to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. In other words, that, that stuff you see me doing, getting away to the desolate place alone with my father, let's start to do that together. Let's start to go there now together. Let's learn how to be alone with God and how important it is. So I think this um, sacred path towards Jesus begins with this idea of solitude, of getting alone with God. Whether that means um, maybe you just try to get up earlier uh, before your kids or your roommates. Or maybe it means that on your way to work, you kind of pull off somewhere. You leave a little early, you pull off somewhere, nobody's around, and you just kind of meet with Jesus in your car. Or maybe you literally head to a desolate place. You'll go up to the hills or whatever. That'd be awesome. Um, but one way or another, we're trying to get alone with him. Maybe it just means you shut the door to your room. (laughs) Now, there is, uh, of course, a very practical side to this. um, Why solitude might be an important kind of first step. Um, For one thing, uh, solitude creates space for you to engage with Jesus uh, with minimal distraction. Right? We're just not going to do as well hearing, listening, bringing our hearts to God um, when, you know, we're kind of in the bustle of whatever. the We're trying to do it in the, I'm not sure, the, the bus or the, the uh, food court at the mall or around the breakfast table with all the family there. It's just not going to be the same. And we need to recognize that. But then the second thing that comes to my mind is that solitude actually creates space for you to engage Jesus with minimal Reservation. This is actually kind of important to me. I wanted to linger here just for a moment because you might not understand what I mean. Um, I actually think that if we are honest and if we are uh, uh, um, truly aware of, of our need for God, who he is, who we are, these times with him, these devotions or whatever you want to call it, quiet times with him, They're going to be messy affairs. They're going to be like tears and snot nose, kind of like like exchanges between me and God. They're not going to be these sort of civilized kind of, oh, I can sit in a coffee shop and and, and read or sit in a a local bookstore and kind of do my thing. Do bookstores even exist anymore? Amazon killed it all. Even Toy Story went out of business. Or uh, Toys R Us went out of business. But you, you keep... Can God meet with us there? Do I do devotions or things like that in public? Or in? Yes. But there's something about getting alone that encourages this. Man, you can get on your face. You can cry. You can. So listen to this about Jesus' times alone with the Father. Hebrews 5, 7. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Now, plenty of commentators think that that might just simply refer to Gethsemane. I don't know. My guess is that that is often how he would pray. And even if it's not how he would often pray with loud cries and tears, what we get from the Psalms is just that. That we ought to be crying out, calling for him, tears, yelling, and maybe it's songs of joy, but there's just expression, there is life, there is, there's this pouring out of the heart to God. And solitude, getting alone, getting away, kind of makes space for that sort of messy engagement. Sometimes you're going to want to sing. Sometimes you're going to want to be quiet. Sometimes you're going to want to praise Him. Other times you're going to want to yell. I don't get what's going on. But you want to be in a place where you can be real with Him. Last thing I, I would say here is I am well aware as a father of three little kids that depending on your stage in life, this is difficult and it requires more creativity, requires more persistence, it requires more grace. You're going to get, I can't tell you how many times I'd get up in the morning thinking, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then whoop, little Levi starts crying or a little footsteps down the hall. Dad, what's good? Can I get some breakfast? Yeah. Sure, okay, all right. You know, so it's, it, it could require creativity and serving one another, spouses, things like that. But um, I hope we see it's worth pursuing. And it's worth trying. Um, now, let's move towards the second step then, silence here. So first, solitude. Now, this idea of silence. As with solitude, uh, I think silence also will kind of elicit a spectrum of responses. Um, just like being alone, some of us love, some of us hate, probably the same with silence. But I would say in our culture, what you might notice more than anything is that we all kind of have this allergic reaction to quiet. Like even in a church, okay, one of the things I am sensitive to, and I actually try to push the envelope a little bit, is that we kind of have this feeling like any silence is just awkward. Like don't be, like if I just were to stop right now. Anybody feel awkward yet? No? It's because I announced it. But if I were just to stop, you'd be like, what is going on? You'd be looking for the door. So we have this kind of allergy to silence. Or you, you, you might even say we're kind of addicted to noise. The earbuds, the TV, all this sort of stuff kind of filling the space. So when we actually try to move towards silence or this place of quiet, it can sometimes feel like detox. You know, the kind where your body responds in almost violent, uh, surprisingly kind of aggressive ways. Like, I don't like this. The um, famous missionary martyr, Jim Elliott, wrote this. I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize on three elements. Noise, hurry, and crowds. Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. So there's a power in the quiet. We might not know it, but the devil knows it. 
And that's why he'll just funnel in. That's why when you go to actually stop and be quiet before the Lord, man, your phone is going to ring. Your emails are going to buzz. All these thoughts are going to start flittering through. I should be doing this. I could be doing that. Is that dust on the blinds? Is that a bug on the floor? Is it... We might not know that there's a power there, but the devil does. And that's why as you move towards it, not only will you kind of feel this sort of detox reaction, You'll also feel like you're doing war with the devil in those moments to try to quiet the noise, not just out there, but in your heart now in particular is what I'm talking about. In your heart. The devil knows if we could ever get quiet, we would finally be in position to hear the voice of God. Remember, that's really where all this is going. The first thing I want to show you here is that this is, in fact, again, a good, even a biblical idea. Perhaps the first place to start is just to point out that in our text, that's exactly what Mary's doing. If you notice, the emphasis is not on the sort of chattering kind of back and forth with Jesus, but our text in particular says this in verse 39. She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. There's this sort of, there's this sort of, uh, uh, Closed mouth, open ear, open heart posture that Mary has going on. And that's the sort of thing we're talking about when I'm talking about silence here. Um, But beyond this, there are countless other places I could take you to show you kind of the the priority or the place of silence in the Christian's or the the child of God's life. Um, I'll just show you a couple uh, some of my favorites, Exodus fourteen thirteen to 14. When, if you remember, God is bringing Israel out of Egypt. He brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. The untamed wilderness is on either side. And from behind, the army of Pharaoh is approaching steadily. You and I, in those moments, just like Israel, freaking out. Did you bring us out here because there weren't any graves in Egypt? We're just going to be dumped into the sea. That's the point of this whole great Passover exodus thing. Just to kill us. What do we do? Grab your swords. Do something. Because they're coming. But here is what God says through Moses to his people. And he would say it to us in the mornings as we come. With our burdens and our anxieties and the stuff we're facing. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Do you love that? It's like a kind and polite way of saying, just shut up. I am God. I know Pharaoh is scary. I know his army is scary. But do you know who I am? And silence reacquaints us with who God is. It's a way of saying, wow, this isn't on me to figure out. First and foremost, I just want him to speak. The battle belongs to him. I can kind of sit quietly before him, just watch him work. Right? There's another text, Isaiah 30, 15. 
comes later in Israel's history. Now it's when the Assyrians were swelling with power and, and the Israelites were facing the threat of exile from their land. And God says this through Isaiah. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. He's saying, listen, I know the Assyrians look scary. I know the threat is real. I know everything in you wants to grab a sword or what they were doing in that time, make an alliance with the surrounding nations so that you have more firepower to try to come up against this. They were actually retreating back to Egypt at this point. Already should have been a big red flag in their minds. Going back to where we started, the house of slavery. But we want to do that sort of thing. And God comes in through Isaiah and says, listen, if you just return to me, rest. If you, he just basically calls Martha's back to the heart of Mary. If you just come and you rest and you sit quietly with me, we will turn all this around. Silence before God. It really, all of this kind of gets at the fact that our constant talking, whether to God or others, is often a result of our own <clears throat> anxiety. In this feeling that we have to be the ones to kind of come up with a solution for our problems and the stuff that we are facing. But God calls us to silence. And here's what I want you to catch. This move towards silence is actually kind of a move back towards sanity. The move towards silence is a move towards, it's a return to our place in the universe. It's a way of saying without any words, you are God and I am not. This is the sort of thing we see in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 3. I love this text. even has this idea of as we're approaching God can on this path, which is why I would place it here at the beginning. Solitude and silence. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 3. Listen to this. Guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Sanity says, let's let God have the first word, right? But he goes on, therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. There's foolishness in all of our talk. There's sanity and wisdom in our quiet before God. So really putting silence here at the beginning of this sacred path is an attempt to settle in our hearts the idea that um, it's God, his agenda, his will, his word that's ultimate in this whole exchange. We're here to hear from him. Now, don't misunderstand me. We will get to the idea of prayer and other things. And obviously, God invites us to talk to him, invites us to communicate, to engage in that way. But I do think, I do think, as a general rule, it is wise to approach God first from the place of silence. Like, you speak to me. I want to hear you. Here's what we know about God's word. It brings order to chaos, right? Genesis 1. Here's what we know often about our words. It just adds to the chaos. 
And what I have found is that if we let God speak to us first, when we wrap back around to speak to him, you might think of here uh, of Job. When we wrap back around to speak of him, we don't speak in the same way. Now, here's the idea then. We get alone with God. We, we, we get in the quiet before him. But now I want to think about what this silence actually looks like, how it actually plays out. Because let's be real, it doesn't, it doesn't just work like, oh, now I'm quiet before God. There's all sorts of stuff going on, and that's actually part of the point. So let me read to you something I found incredibly helpful on this. This comes from a book that I love uh, called The Imperfect Pastor uh, by a guy um, by the name of Zach Eswine. And this is what he writes about this idea of silence with the Lord. I try to wait with no words for a moment in the presence of him who loves me and sees me in secret. But over the first several minutes, my mind isn't silent. The thoughts and feelings that have gone unnoticed amid the chatter of the day seize their moment and rise loudly to the surface as I try to quiet down. He's not, you know, a romantic idealist on this. There's a bunch of noise. The first round of these thoughts is like foam on a soda or cream on milk. We clear it away to get to what lies beneath. So I take each thought that vies for my attention, no matter what it is, How silly or terrible, how ordinary or task-oriented, how biblically inaccurate or theologically sound. And I turn it into a prayer, saying of each one, I hear myself thinking this thing, Lord, and I bring it to you. I leave it with you. By taking each thought to him, I'm doing what Peter told me to do, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting our cares is like reaching into a pile of mixed laundry. So picture this as you're being silent or attempting to be quiet before God. Casting our cares is like reaching into a pile of mixed laundry, sorting out each cloth and putting each piece back where it belongs. Or going through a worn garage of tools scattered everywhere. One by one, I pick up each tool and hand it to God and he puts it back where it belongs. Now the first blast of frothy thought has been cleared. It matters to know that often after the froth clearing and before the deep drinking and prayerful aloneness with God, boredom, restless mind, feelings of wasted time, and anxious fear all collaborate into a gang and try to loot us. They mosquito bite us, which is a perfect image. When I'm outside and there are mosquitoes buzzing around, no longer do you enjoy the dinner, no longer do you enjoy the picnic, you just want to leave. So there are these things that are going to try to stop you in these moments. And he says, they mosquito bite us, and we want to get up and do anything but this. Instead, I invite you to hold on. Let's face this detox deliberately. With Jesus' kindness and mercy set before us, we look again to the open book. We let in the wise man, Jesus' mentoring. I can't elaborate or I can't go into detail on his words there, but I do want to try to kind of boil it down and show you how this might play out. Again, if you're curious or you want to see some of these things, my manuscripts always go online onto our website so you can find this quote and other things again. But here's what I see, I, I think is happening in the silence. And as I've kind of moved towards this myself, here's what I have found. First, we need to recognize, we start to recognize that we're always talking. 
That's one thing that the silence actually brings about is I'm never silent. You might say, oh, Nick, I, I'm an introvert. I hate talking. Actually, I go around and most people, I, I, I don't ever even say a word. I'm not talking about external. Talk about in here. When we really key in, when we really slow down, we find out that we're always talking. We're always saying something. We're always interpreting our world. And one of the saddest realities is that often what we find is our thoughts kind of happen to us or our thoughts have us rather than we have our thoughts, if that makes sense. So when you slow down in the silence, you start to realize, wow. What is all this going on? Why am I thinking about that? I didn't even realize that was what was bothering me when I snapped at my kid. What is all this stuff? So first, we recognize that we are always talking. Second, we tune in to what we are actually saying. We tune in to what's actually going on in our hearts and why we're not quiet. So like Zach says there, it might be that the first things you notice are just kind of little tasks or little things kind of meandering around in your consciousness. You kind of give those to God and you move on. But here's what I've found. Oftentimes something comes up and I give it to God and then it comes back. And it comes back, and it comes back, and it comes back. And I want to show you what's going on here, I think, is, is my, my thoughts are now starting to orbit around something else that's become central. As I try to be quiet, certain things are kind of exposed in me. And they're not just quick little passing thoughts. They're deep heart sort of issues that are emerging. You might think of it like the sun, right, and the planets in our solar system and how they're orbiting around it. You can't pull them out. It would be no good if we could pull the planets out of orbit from the sun. Well, when our thoughts start to go back and go back and I try to give and then it keeps coming and interrupting the quiet rest I'm hoping to have with God in these moments, you have an indication something else perhaps is central in your life with regard to your identity, your hopes, your dreams, your fears. You have something to really open yourself up to God about and beg him to speak into. Give you an example of that. You might find that when you sit down, you uh, keep thinking about your work. You keep thinking about the tasks or the projects. Seems relatively harmless. You make a quick little list and then you kind of move on, but then you keep coming back and you keep coming back. And as you kind of before God, what is what is going on? You realize, oh, well, this past week, one of your close friends works on your team with you, whatever, just got fired for poor performance. And as you kind of look underneath the surface of these lists you're creating or these things you're thinking about, you realize, I'm afraid. Like just talk like a toddler to your father. There's something refreshing about toddlers. They don't hide how they feel. Just, I'm scared. You start to realize those sort of things underneath all the disguises. I'm this good, strong businessman. No, I'm not. I'm scared. I'm scared I might lose my job if I don't do this and that. I'm scared I won't be able to provide for my family. I'm scared I won't be a success. If I have to tell my parents or tell my wife, what are they going to think of me? The bros, you know, that I hang out with on the weekends. What? All of a sudden, what you thought was just a simple passing thought, you realize has this whole tangled root system and you have now something significant 
that you can beg God to speak into a place that you really are. His word can come in and meet. And you can do real work with him. And this kind of gets to this third idea um, because part of the point in these times of silence is to become more aware, not just of God, but of the things you are thinking and feeling. And as we become more aware of these things, we can more honestly surrender ourselves to him, open ourselves up in the places we need him to speak most. So third thing I would say that's involved in the silence is this idea of casting our cares, surrendering our wills and opening our hearts so that we are positioned to encounter, to truly engage, to hear. I can't tell you how many times I start kind of just make a quick little list of certain things and I realize how deep it's on my heart. And then it's like, as I come to the word, which we'll do more, a lot more next week, now it's like the implications from this text, there are things that are just going to light up in my life. I need you to speak in this. I didn't even realize that was an issue until I sat down. But God, I need you to speak. And you start to see how he speaks and what he can do, and what he has to say into the things you are really facing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Silence. Now, This moves us to uh, the final thing I want to look at, and this one will be the quickest. Um, Scripture. Realistically, what I've given you so far may just simply be a few minutes. I'm just meditating on it, thinking on it with you. may just be a few minutes of your morning. You kind of get alone with God and you try to quiet yourself before him. The point in all of this really is to ready yourself to hear from him in Scripture. To hear from him like Mary would, sitting and listening. Um, Perhaps a text, and this is really the only one I want to look at, that kind of brings all of this together for us, um, actually is found in 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. Um, The prophet Elijah, at the time he was kind of running from Ahab and Jezebel, kind of this wicked king and his lady and and he's, he's, he's running because he's facing persecution. And he gets alone with God. He kind of ends up in the wilderness, in this cave. And uh, he has this kind of solitude with God, perhaps not by choice, but there he is. He's brought to a place of silence, as we'll see. And it's in the place of silence that God speaks. Let me show you this. So remember, Elijah has taken up residence now in a cave. God calls to him and says this, 1 Kings 19.11, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So we have this tendency of thinking that if God's going to speak to us anywhere, if God's going to really do any big time work, it's going to be where the fireworks are going off. It's going to be on Mount Carmel or it's going to be, you know, uh, when we got the bands playing or the, the stuff going on. But what God is trying to get across to Elijah and to us is that it's often not in the midst of that sort of loud, you know, big, awesome stuff that we hear from him. It's actually often going to be in the place we least expect it uh, to come. It's going to be in the quiet. 
In fact, the Hebrew here translated a low whisper in verse 12, which is where Elijah hears his voice. Uh, it literally translates as a sheer silence. Or your ESV, uh, if you have that translation, puts it in the footnote, a thin silence. So it's the strange idea of in the silence, in the quiet, in the thin silence, Elijah hears his voice. His voice wasn't in the wind. It wasn't in the fire. It wasn't in the earthquake. But then comes the, the quiet and he hears it. So he covers his face because he knows no man can see God and live. He encounters God, solitude, silence. Scripture is the idea. But there's one last thing that I want to say about this text here in 1 Kings, and it's with this that I'm going to leave us this morning. Because here is really where the cross, actually, believe it or not, breaks in on all that I've been saying. We are um, perhaps inclined to think that we deserve such a thing to get alone with God and hear his voice and, and have him speak graciously to us. But it's not that way at all. In fact, alone time with God, you remember Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, when they, when they walked into sin? Alone time with God was a terrifying thing. They tried to hide And his presence at the end of the age, when Jesus returns, we read that the kings of the earth are going to beg the rocks to come and and, and crush them lest they have to face Jesus. It is not supposed to be a pleasant thing for sinners. We shouldn't get this solitude, silence, scripture, God speaking to our hearts. That shouldn't be our experience. And I want to show you from our text how we see that how we see that we get this experience in the first place. I wonder if you notice, God tells Elijah, verse 11, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. We're not told exactly whether Elijah goes out, but it would seem to me he doesn't. He's in a cave. God says, come out. But before he even comes out, all the stuff starts going down. And he's, he's still in the cave. And we know that because verse 13, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out. And stood at the entrance of the cave. It's like as that stuff was going on, he went deeper in, it seems. The idea is this while the wind is howling, and we read this wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, verse 11. While the earth is quaking and the fire is burning, Elijah is, as it were, sheltered by the rock, sheltered in the cave. And then he comes out and he hears the voice of God. So there is more here than just God is found in the silence. Indeed, there is a wonderful picture in this text of how we are brought to actually hear God's word in the first place. Because the reality is, We deserve to be thrown into that fire, into that storm, into that earthquake. All these things that we watch happen there are emblems throughout the Old Testament and New of God's judgment. They're emblems of God's judgment against sin, against sinners. And yet here we see Elijah sheltered. And we're inclined to think of the one who has sheltered us. 
We're inclined to think of Jesus who, you remember, I mean, quite literally is thrown into this kind of storm. Not sheltered, but abandoned and utterly exposed there at Calvary on the cross. Do you remember? The earth is literally quaking. The sun is going black. He is experiencing the wrath of God against yours and my sin. Why? So that we could come here this morning, hear a sermon on how God wants us to get alone with him, quiet ourselves before him, so he can speak grace, restoration, life to us in that place. If this is the cost, if this is what Jesus goes through to bring us to this place, man, let's give ourselves to the sacred path, if you will, whatever you want to call it, to sitting and listening, to engaging, to entering in, to that one necessary thing. Amen? Let's pray. God, we want to be in that place with you this morning, right now. I know I gave us a lot. I pray, God, that you would highlight those things for each person here that you are wanting them to sit in, think about, reflect, turn back to prayer or praise, repentance or faith. God, I pray that we would see the cost for our quiet times, the cost you paid for our quiet times at Calvary. That we could hear you in a quiet place as you take the judgment and calm the waters. What a good God, what a good Savior. We come to you now. We beg you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen.